welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show is Dr. Bernie Siegel, world-renowned surgeon and best-selling author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Welcome. So I'd like to reintroduce Bernie Siegel today. Um, he was on the podcast last week discussing the importance of the doctor-patient relationship. And he and I have both come to similar conclusions is that there's lots of things in this life that are unexplained. And somehow humans have a re, somehow need to explain things in really concrete terms. And we're really energy beings and energy fields. And life itself is a miracle. Healing is a miracle. We didn't heal broken bones. We wouldn't survive. I mean, the the fact the body can heal is a miracle. So what Bernie has learned, and I've learned a lot from Bernie, is how to help the patients heal. So Bernie is the author of a very famous book in the 80s called Love, Medicine, Miracles. Had a big impact on my life. And the book we're going to talk about today is The Art of Healing. And uh, I just started to talk to Bernie about um, this book he wrote called The Art of Healing and using art as a diagnostic tool. But I do first want to say that Bernie's had a massive impact on me personally. Um, he is a surgeon. Um, he went, I don't know what his journey was exactly, but I went from being a very traditional mechanical surgeon to actually listening to people, which is not my historical role. And so what I've learned from Bernie is about anything is possible. You got to listen Otherwise, nothing's possible in a way. So it's really open up to possibilities that a lot of things happen that are truly miraculous. And people say, well, this is crazy. That's miraculous. Well, life itself is a miracle. I mean, think about it. What We're so complex. We're really specks in the universe. And so life is a miracle. Healing is a miracle. And allowing people to connect to the capacity to heal is a big deal. So what Bernie discovered, and I'll let him talk here in a second, Bernie, this is your podcast, is that he's an artist. And somehow in his career, he began to use art as a diagnostic tool. So Bernie, could you just tell me briefly how you started discovering art is a diagnostic tool and then some of the stories around it? Well, one fortunate thing was I was doing a lot of pediatric surgery because literally I realized so many surgeons were not trained to take care of children. So they weren't treating them in a special way that children needed, you know, in terms of security, safety, all kinds of things. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing now because I acted like a child when I was taking care of children. And that completely distracted them from the operating room, you know, and worrying. Of course, I knew some of them were thinking, I need to talk to my parents. They're going to let him operate on me, right. you know, because I'd be acting so silly. But as I say, it kept them distracted. And they didn't mind having surgery because they woke up feeling comfortable and everything else. And I mean that literally. And I've operated on some of our own children and, you know, done it in the same way. Um, and surgeons, again, are not trained to treat the person, but it's back to the diagnosis and everything else. But when, see, when good things happen, nobody's against it. Siegel's crazy. 
But when his patients do better than the other doctor's patients, maybe he's not crazy. And let's treat the other patients the way he treats his. Right. So, you know, it was teaching people how to talk to patients, how to create an environment in the operating room. I mean, I played music in the operating room. And um, I was considered a hazard, a problem. I brought in an electrical appliance that could blow up the operating room. But within a few weeks, everybody felt better with the music playing. So they never said, you could blow up the operating room. Now it wasn't a matter anymore. I feel better. So if it blows up, all right, I'll accept it. Um, yeah. What, what, what people don't understand is that when you create a say, relaxation, safety, laughter, playfulness, what happens, your body changes its chemical structure from what we call threat physiology, which is inflammation and fuel consumption and stress hormones to safety. We're actually storing fuel in the body and healing. So it's a profound shift in your body's defenses against disease. And so I don't think I did quite the same style you did, but we started a rehab process before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery, where people knew things really carefully. They documented very carefully. We call it prehab. And then what happened is that people had very little pain postoperatively. The results were spectacular. And by allowing people to relax, it changes your body's chemistry. So it's not some type of psychological construct. It's a profound shift in chemistry. Even the infection rate goes down because your immune system's stronger. And so that's not psychological. It's the body's physiology. By honoring the body's capacity to heal, it really makes a big difference. So you've used our, um, some of the stories you've told specifically about some of the, so did you ask, Patients draw pictures in the office, in the operating room, different places. I mean, what? how did you use art in your practice? Well, first, I can tell you why. See, what made me a believer? I think the fact that as a kid, I grew up wanting to be an artist, but didn't know how you earn money if you were an artist. <laughs> right. Big problem. You know, I didn't know painting sold for millions of dollars. You know what I mean? Or right. I might have said, oh, good, I'll be an artist. Um, and so I went into medical school because I like people and want to help people. Nobody in the family was a doctor. Um, and I got interested in all this. And, uh, then I felt the pain of being a doctor. I couldn't cure everybody. It was awful. And I needed help emotionally. And I went to a workshop by Elizabeth Cooper-Ross. And she straightened my life out. Um, so, 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 by the way, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, for those of you who might know, is a very famous. Is she a, is she a physician or is she a writer? Yeah, she was a physician and wrote a, a, one of the first books on the subject on death and dying. Right. You know, showing how people really were in many ways in control of this process and what happened and everything else. But I drew her a picture and in it was my angel, George, um, and a few other things. And she began to ask me such intelligent questions about my life from this picture. I mean, one was, why is eight important to you? Why is what? Why is eight, the number eight? Okay. I said, what are you asking me that for? You drew eight trees. 
So, you know, to me, it was like, so I drew eight trees. But eight was the period of time in which I had begun to change my life, you know, into mind, body, and starting support groups. So she kept asking me questions about my drawing. And I realized this is not a coincidence. You know, this is real and symbolic. So I began to have my patients draw pictures and interpret them. In other words, if you drew chemotherapy as poison versus, and I don't make up any of these stories, versus it coming from God, beautiful yellow stream, guess who's going to have side effects? You know, um, the operating room's a black room. Uh, yeah, you're going to have every side effect in the book. So I would get these pictures from patients, and if they were negative, change their concept or don't go through it. Right. So if you're going to die in the operating room and you drew that in the picture, I'd say you're better off going home and getting yourself straightened out uh, before you go lie down in the operating room. And everybody saw the results. I mean, I was crazy until I started doing it at the hospital. Then everybody was my fan because those patients did better. Um, and they saw that mind was a powerful tool and instrument. I mean, even saying to somebody, how would you describe being in the operating room? I mean, if it's a mutilating bunch of words, uh, you're going to have every trouble, every complication versus if it's a good word, you know, like a place to be healed, fixed, getting well uh, <clears throat> versus it's going to be painful and Oh, I won't be able to walk for a while, uh, you know, all these things. And so what people pictured had a lot to do with how they did. And so many things were in the drawing, which I just drew an outdoor scene. You know, my angel was in it that I met in a meditation. I'd never met him, but I drew the picture of him. I drew the eight trees, I drew other things, and I couldn't believe all these intelligent questions Elizabeth had from this crazy looking picture that had nothing to do with the operating room or medicine or anything else. But every time she asked me, you know, why this, what that, it, I had an answer in my head immediately. Uh, and so I started doing that with patients. Draw yourself in the operating room. I mean, if it's a black box, uh, you know, where everything, nobody's touching you, caring about you, uh, I suggest you don't have it or change surgeons or do something uh, about it. And then other people could draw the operating room as this beautiful, glorious place. Uh, and I'd say, you don't have to worry, go ahead, you'll do beautifully. And they did. It wasn't just me saying it and convincing them. It was what they had already drawn. And that's what changed people at the hospital. I began playing music in the operating room. Um, and when I say that, I, I, I mean, it was just peaceful, loving music um, that played in the background. And that made a difference too. And uh, when everybody in the operating room began to feel better, they knew the patient. Yeah, see, that was another thing, the anesthesiologist. What are you talking for to the patient? They're, they're anesthetized. I said, yeah, but they can hear me. That's why I'm talking. 
And the anesthesiologist thought I was nuts. They're completely anesthetized and you're talking and they know what you're saying. Well, when patients began to wake up and ask me questions that had to do with what I said in the operating room, that changed everybody. So they learned too that you, you don't scare people with the injection or anything else. You know, this will be a mosquito bite, not, you know, this terrible needle going into you. So they realized in a sense, we were hypnotizing people in a therapeutic way and nobody's against success. So before you knew it, <laughs> I'm laughing because the biggest complaint I had was you can't bring an electric appliance into the operating room. It could cause an explosion. Anesthetic gases are explosive, some of them. Well, in about two months, I never heard that again from an anesthesiologist because I knew they were saying, yeah, it may blow up the operating room, but it feels better to be in there. So let's take the risk. And everybody was bringing in what they called the boom boxes and playing music. And when you played it for kids, nursery rhymes, you know, things, everybody in the operating room became a kid again. And they're all laughing and having a nice day. And that's what changed them. They saw the impact it had on not only patients, but anesthesiologists, surgeons, and others, and how the attitude changed. And it became a healing place where literally, again, people woke up from surgery, were asked if they wanted some pain medication, and said, no, I'm feeling fine. Thank you. Right. The nurses would come to me and say, your patients are a problem. What is it? They refuse pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? And they look at me like I'm a freaking idiot. You just cut them open and they're not hurting. Right. But their minds, and that's, again, what convinced me, the power of the mind, that you could have chemo chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, and no side effects. Why? This is God's gift to me to help me get well, you know, versus the patient who says, I'm being poisoned, uh, burned. And uh, that's why, again, if doctors aren't trained how to treat people or, or use the drawings, <clears throat> because part of why I did so much of drawings, if you say to somebody, draw yourself in the operating room, and it's an empty room with you lying there by yourself, that's trouble. Right. Uh, if chemotherapy is poison given by the devil, you know, uh, radiation is this horrible, it's gonna burn you. Uh, I would say to people, don't go or change your image, your attitude. Did and you ever, did you ever make diagnoses based on art? Oh, yes. What, what were some of those stories? Well, uh, knowing anatomy was easier for me than others, but I'm, I'm trying to think. <laughs> there were so many, I've forgotten them. Um, the, uh, I mean, I have one story I can tell you that after I talked to you, I started to put this together a little bit, but there's a very famous dance instructor here in the Bay Area who just passed away in her late 90s. But when she was 73, she, I'm not sure why she drew the picture. But I think her doctor did ask her to draw a picture and she drew a little self-portrait and over her left lower part of her abdomen, there's a big black spot and no symptoms, nothing, just a routine checkup. And I'm not sure how or why they acted on it, but sure enough, she had an <clears throat> ovarian cancer. 
that they removed wasn't spread at that point. The reason why ovarian cancer to the public, to the audience, is such a problem because it doesn't push it on any critical structure. So by the time it creates symptoms, it's too big to take out. So somehow the picture revealed the ovarian cancer at a point it was easy to take out. She lived another 25 years after that with a cancer diagnosis that would be, you know, normally pretty deadly. So that was after I had talked to you, that was that story always stuck out in my mind because that, that was a pretty famous story here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I've had so many things that it's hard for me to keep them in my head. Right. Uh, but the drawings are what changed everybody in the hospital. You know, when you'd hold it up and show them, it was like, wow, because the the physicians, anesthesiologists, nurses knew anatomy. So when you held up the patient's drawing, it was like, oh, they saw that part of the body, whereas the patient wasn't seeing it as a part of the body. But right. how they drew it, portrayed it, and uh, that's what changed them to accept what I was doing and uh, use it even when I wasn't there because they knew how helpful it could be. One thing that was fun, um, I did a workshop at Omega Workshop, Omega Institute in New York with my um, stepdaughter and wife. And Bernie was going to make it, didn't quite make it there, but we did it on Skype. And so we had the people in the room draw, Bernie asked them to draw self-portraits or portraits of their life. And so we'd hold them up to the screen and Bernie would interpret them for us. And I'll never forget, there was one, I mean, there's a bunch of different things they pointed out. Every one of them was really ridiculously accurate. But one in particular, a woman had drawn a picture and there were 19 flowers. And so nobody counted the flowers, of course, including her. Bernie counted the flowers. And sure enough, it was the year that she had been sexually assaulted at age 19 years old. And just bam, right there. And so we know that the body is programmed by life events. We get programmed by our past. And when we talk about the body keeps the score, it does. Your whole body does. It stores traumas and stuff like that. And so when it gets expressed in a conscious form, i.e. in pictures or in art or music, why it's not some psychological construct. It's your body saying, look, this is what's going on. And so again, going back to the doctor-patient relationship we did in the first podcast, if you can't hear what your patient is saying and the patient can't connect to what's going on, and we're treating just symptoms, it sort of doesn't really work. Conversely, helping the patient connect their symptoms to their lives is, is sort of a big deal. The research also shows that um, lack of hope is actually inflammatory and actually hope is anti-inflammatory. And so, again, a profound shift in your body's chemistry just based on the social circumstances. So, again, these aren't really a psychological constructs as much as circumstantial constructs, stress constructs, how the body responds to all this, you know, with profound changes in the body's chemistry. I mean, let me say this, even time is portrayed. I'm sorry? Even time is portrayed. Okay. That you could make, <clears throat> like I made eight trees. And Elizabeth said, why are the eight trees? And I immediately had an answer, you know? And so I would look to rays of sunshine. It doesn't matter, leaves on a tree. Why is that number important to you? <clears throat> and well, let me give you one. A child with cancer, I told the mother, stop running around the world with your kid. Take her home and love her. 
because the mother was feeling very guilty if she didn't keep trying to cure this eight-year-old. And I said, the reason I'm saying this to you, I asked her to draw a picture. She drew a purple um, cloud with her name in it and purple spiritual, and she's ready to go up and leave her body. So take her home. I said, I don't know why she draw eight pretty flowers around herself, like on the floor next to her bed. Oh, and then there was one kid in the picture caring and looking terrible. And I mentioned that and the little girl said, that's not me, that's the kid in the next bed crying. And again, it's how interesting it is. See, she changed colors when she's drawing the kid in the bed next to her, not her, because I was getting confused why right. there are two kids in there and you know mixing up the messages. And uh, the mother took her home. I have the picture in my house, the drawing. She gave it to me as a gift. There were eight flowers on the page. Eight days later, I got a phone call. Bernie, Amber woke up today. She said, mom, it's your birthday. I'm dying today as a gift to you to free you from all the trouble. Boom. And those eight flowers were her eight days of her life. So even, you know, people could do 26 rays of sunshine. And I would always say, why is 26 important to you? And it could be something in the future. That's true. But uh, many times they would immediately have an answer and you know, you know, what need to be dealt with in their life in a positive or negative way. Um, and I've used it in our kids and everything else because it's both past, present and future. If you said, I don't know what to do when I grow up, what should I be? Draw a picture of yourself with all those options. You'll see which is the one that you're gonna enjoy the most. And uh, you got nothing to lose by doing it or with treatments. This is what the doctor said I could have. Draw all of them and then let's look at them and see which makes the most sense and looks the best for you. And that, that's what changed the hospital because they saw the experience. You know, if you drew the devil giving you poison, and I'm not making up stories, um, then we all know you're going to have side effects and problems. But when you draw an IV coming out of God, yellow energy, you're not going to have any trouble with it. And yeah, that that those beliefs and, and power uh, that are put into you affect you and how you recover. And that's, again, what changes people in the hospital. You know, Siegel's crazy. Yeah, but after a year or two, Siegel's patients are doing better than the others. Right. So maybe we should learn what he's doing. Yeah. Right. So, Bernie, thank you very much. This is always a treat to talk to you. I hopefully do a few more of these relatively soon. But um, the book that's really interesting, I have to reread it myself. He put a, a book together specifically on art and medicine. Um, called the art of healing and he has lots of patients examples and pictures and stories right there and i think it's actually a pretty darn interesting diagnostic tool i not bernie do you have any actual research that was done looking at art and symptoms by chance i mean to me it's actually a powerful enough diagnostic tool that it should be looked at as something standard yeah. in a way the the book that changed me was uh oh boy <clears throat> It, it, it was in my head and suddenly uh, went out again. 
Oh, life paints its own span. Okay. Yeah, that was done by a therapist who collected the drawings of a child. See, the kids had no problem doing drawings because they're not saying, I'm not an artist. Uh, right. You're trying to help somebody with cancer and their problem is, I'm not an artist. I mean, come on, we're talking about your life. But um, so this was called The Art of Healing. And it was amazing how many kids were expected to die, but their drawings are in the book and they ended up living afterwards. Uh, I'm sure the drawings had something to do with it. Right. And, you know, and my interest in art made me naturally go into that. And uh, so I always went around with a box of crayons and, and did things. And if you do it in the, in the emergency room, people are fascinated. You know, who needs surgery, who doesn't, what's wrong with them. Um, and you have all these things you could show them, the drawing. And that fascinated. See, when you see it, literally the anatomy appearing in a drawing, and the patient knows nothing about the anatomy, but there it is, you know, we look at it as doctors and, oh, you know what that is. And that's what convinces the doctors in the hospital and the nurses that Siegel isn't crazy. Because when the operating room is this, you know, horrible place, uh, they learn they're gonna have every side effect in the book. But if they drew it as this lovely place, healthy colors and people caring for them, they were gonna wake up and be, Fine. Yeah, no, it's really remarkable how that works. So um, Bernie has a website, um, BernieSiegel.com or is it BernieSiegelMD.com? Bernie, I think it's BernieSiegelMD.com. Okay. And so he has um, his books on there. He has a blog. He answers questions. And again, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed trying to convey what Bernie has contributed to our medical world, to the world in general, just a whole level of consciousness. It, let me say, change. I have so many magazines in the house where the cover story is interview with the controversial Dr. Bernie Siegel. Right. I know. But today we're talking about things that used to be controversial, you know, mind, body, and all sorts of stuff. And, and what good does a drawing do? But then you see when a doctor comes in and you say, do a drawing and you end up helping them or their family, then suddenly, hey, this ain't crazy. This yeah. is really helpful. Yeah. No, he's been well ahead of his time for many decades. So anyway, Bernie, again, thank you very, very much. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel, for being on the show today and for sharing how he uses patient drawings to understand the patient's story and help promote healing. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.